genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Jodorowsky, and this week we're just we're discussing Jay, Daisy, and Nick from The Great Gatsby. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Charlie Keeks. Welcome back, Charlie. Thanks for having me. And as I said, we were talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel, The Great Gatsby, which tells the story of Nick observing everyone else's most awkward conversations until several people are dead. <laughs> it just really struck me on this uh, reread. Well, I actually listened to this time, but uh, Nick is just kind of there for everyone else's like worst moments of public <laughs> public dispute. <laughs> I think room. it very much is a high literary you know, um, answer to noir as a genre. Which I don't know if we always discuss it in those um, lights, but yeah, I mean it's a crime novel in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it takes a little while to get there, but boy, boy, is there some crime? <laughs> it's gonna <laughs> it be takes there. a while for the eponymous character to be introduced. That's what struck me on this list. I'm like, okay, <laughs> where's Gatsby? So yeah, looking forward to that. Charlie, structure. what? What is your uh, relationship with this text? Great guy. Oh, you remember when you first came to it? Oh, my goodness. We could have a whole, a whole thing. We could have a whole discussion of how it intersected with my coming of age, as I suppose many um, young adults read the book. So set the scene. It was probably 2003, give or take year, definitely in the mid-2000s. And I, like everyone's favorite the uh, self-pitying mm, social climbing literary novelist was a middle class at best <laughs> um, youth at a very, very elite moneyed green quads lacrosse player roaming them um, prep school. So, I mean, just literally the 1% of my state. And so I was like in constant terror of losing what little I had. <laughs> like that one Bible verse, from he who hath nothing will be cast even what you attain. That's how I felt my entire late teens. So I was in an honors English class. And long story short, the founder of this school had some very, uh, you know, outdated views on women. He'd go on and on. It's really creepy, actually. He kept talking out. We're 16, 17 years old. We're juniors. That basically our eggs were about to dry up and we better, we better get on that. We better land what? This is, thank you. Thank you. I lived a Fitzgerald short story. It's meta. Thank you. And so believe it or not, I just, I kind of got put off. The discipline of English. I was like, all right, I'll get the A. I'll, I'll you know, get through. And, you know, I mean, I enjoyed it certainly more than some of the, you know, we read, um, Let's see who wrote this one. I think it might be Sinclair Lewis. Yeah, Aerosmith, Babbitt. Yeah, one of these, you know, that's just so dry when you're a teen. I liked um, Farewell to Arms. I hated this one about, like, the Civil War. Um, Miss Ravenel, blah, blah, blah. So, honestly, people that knew me in college think of me as very literary, very into books. I was probably aligning myself more with, like, Steps 
I was like, I don't know. I'm more like into like science and uh, foreign literature. I did end up majoring in French. But the whole experience of this guy yanking on my ponytail was very, very upsetting, frankly. You know, so I was just like, all right, let's just get through this. So it wasn't really until I had, you know, kind of an era. I was, I was pretty depressed, isolated um, in my early 20s, probably, you know, about the age of <clears throat> some of the female characters, you know, that weird, like you haven't figured out your career yet, but you're not really a school um, age person anymore. I just read them ravenously, including many, you know, 1920s, 30s authors to the point that when I went back to our shared alma mater, they're like, you just really, are you like a modernism specialist? Why do you know so much? I'm like, I, I just like dropped out of college and read a lot. So I have, you know, I think it was one of the Stoics that says, you know, a man never steps into the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same man. So I would say that I really fell in love with it in my 20s. And then, you know, the movie came out 10 years ago. The year I graduated, which college. it's weird to me that it's ten years ago. Yeah, that yeah, movie yeah. Feel like a ago. <laughs> that it does actually show something that I've heard in other domains, like fashion, is that we have less distinctive eras of pop culture in our adulthood. There's just not as big of a difference between say '95 and you know 2025 yeah. as I think these characters are going through something so traumatic my other favorite novel um of this era although i believe it came out you know 20 years later is the razor's edge right and that is by a british author looking at american middle west you know class issues and it really you know puts ptsd in the conversation without using that label right you know shell shock um, so. is that one uh world war one veteran story mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, which of course Nick Carraway are you know, um, mm -hmm. and and Tom are themselves, and so I think that I just really resonate for whatever reason with this so-called lost generation. The lost generation in between the wars, <laughs> indeed. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of my and this probably I'm trying to think. Mm, you know, besides um, Pride and Prejudice, probably the work of fiction I have revisited the most numerically. Yeah, I, it, it's a fast read, so that makes it easier. <laughs> like, like I can't say. Oh, we all, we all yeah. have a you know shot um, focus. I'm never reading a, a full Tolstoy novel. Please, maybe I'll listen. But like, <laughs> we just don't do big doorstopper novels, which I yeah. think is interesting. I think he Scott was trying to do something artistic, make a statement. And it's only after you're dead, apparently, people are like, yeah. oh, wow, I see what you were going for here. At the time, you're just like, eh, it's not this side of paradise. Nice try, but like, come on. So that fascinates. I think I just got really intrigued by the idea of failure, professional mm -hmm. failure, romantic failure, right? You know, I feel like I grew up on very, you know, kind of mm, inspirational, even faith promoting at times. Um you know, black and white stories, the good triumph, the evil or punish this book. I don't know who's good, if anyone, like maybe yeah. some of the cater waiters at the parties, they're just there to do their job. It's yeah. like, um, it's like succession in that way where you're like, I am deeply invested in this narrative and also you all suck. <laughs> Even uh, like, like Nick, he's a bit of a cyber. We don't actually get a whole lot uh, of understanding about Nick. But even he's, I'm like, yeah, 
I think you could have done more here, buddy. <laughs> like, you really let a lot of things happen. It's sort of um, <laughs> passive. Yeah. Mm. And that's, I mean, it is quite different from some of its predecessors, especially, but, you know, even contemporary. You know, if I think of, say, you know, Edith Wharton, Custom of the Country, I think that's 1913, and uh, Scott was a big admirer of Wharton. Um, you know, the protagonist is such a protagonist, such a, a like, a will to make things happen, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, so they're agentive, they're assertive. <laughs> yes, agentive. Is, and I think that what makes the, and what bothers me, I'm one of these like originalists that's, you know, super fun at parties, but I find it really weird that, um, you know, it comes and goes. I feel like even in my adult life, you know, like there was like 60s nostalgia, um, with um mad men's peak popularity like you know just the like the idea of the 20s versus the reality mm-hmm. is really quite different i think it was more conservative and str- you know i was reading that you know anyone who thinks of the female characters in this is particularly like liberated or <laughs> agents of their destiny like didn't read the book um and so yeah it's just funny that we put our I guess postmodern, right? You, you're the academic here. Um, you might know the real labels, but like the world that we were born into was one that was being actively created <laughs> very self-consciously by, yeah, like a small set of, so it's, it's just interesting that um, the excess, you know, like something that really strikes me and is kind of interesting Um you know, you compare this with uh, Tender is the Night came out a decade later when, you know, he's in his 30s and a broken man in many ways, um, Scott Fitzgerald. And um, full-blown addiction and mental illness is like a very obvious theme in Tender is the Night. And I think tracks Scott's own behavioral issues. But in Gatsby, many of the characters, the narration makes clear are not heavy drinkers. Daisy very explicitly says, you know, she stays sober among hard drinking people. Nick, he's been drunk, 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 you know, too, inebriated two times his life. Jay Gatsby doesn't touch it. He's a rum runner. And he's like one of these, you know, I don't get high on my supply. So it's just interesting that at least in the circles I've run in, um, Gatsby is like, a vibe as an excuse to go completely the opposite. Like there's this line of Fitzgerald's in one of his nonfiction essays that I love. Cause I feel like, you know, you say it doesn't feel like a decade. This feels to me like, you know, you and I kind of grew up in a very old fashioned, you know, fly over country culture in many ways. Right. I don't think it'd be out of place in like <laughs> a 1910s college party. Right. Very, um, yeah, not modern in some ways. And so his line is like in 1920, he offered a businessman to go get a cocktail, I don't know, at noon or something, you know, middle of the day. And the kid's like, what? Like, that's, who are you? Like a gutter drunk? And then, you know, he said, there's a um, speakeasy in the basement of every building. I'm from Salt Lake City. That's my hometown. I'm like, that's kind of feels like one of the big social changes, a an attitude to, you know, not just alcohol, that's part of it, but just like a party lifestyle. And so that's another thing that really intrigues me about this text and revisit on is something of the ambivalence of 
the point of view character and therefore maybe Fitzgerald. Apparently he had a lot of beef with all his wealthy neighbors. So yeah. I'm like, that's very, he strikes as a very insecure person. And maybe mm-hmm. that's why he's my literary hero. I, I share that. Yeah, I mean, it is. So, so it's a novel that comes out in 1925 and it is immensely critical of the culture that yes. he is seeing around him. Yes. And yet, as you're it's saying, like it becomes, <laughs> becomes emblematic of that yeah. era in a way that feels celebratory uh-huh. in a lot of ways. Correct. Uh, when people it's talk so about it. ironic. And so I don't know if it's because mm, kind of like, you know, you read Joan Didion about the 60s. You're like, I don't know. Maybe like, don't do our drugs. And like, you know, if you're going to San Francisco, don't wear flowers in your hair, right? Like when you're in the middle of rapid social change, I think psychologically, you're going to experience it as a break, right? You know, you're going to mm-hmm. see the negatives. But again, if we've inherited a world where, you know, women vote and <laughs> can, you know, drink and drive cars and, you know, the sexual mores, I'm sure, um, really, you know, tilted more towards, you know, the, like the, uh, Fitzgerald died before the so-called sexual revolution, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting that, yeah, you know, we want to justify and be like, not only is this more subtle, this is actually good. But in fact, yeah, the like the carrot, you wouldn't have Gordon Gecko without Gatsby, but Gatsby is, and we'll have to get into this. Who's the protagonist? Who's the antagonist? Who's in it? Like, it's just from a craft perspective, I'm like, this is a way, like, this wasn't dashed off. This is, I think, his most complex work of fiction and I've read all of his works many mm-hmm. multiple times so it's just interesting that yes uh we Americans want to believe greed is good and that you can climb the I mean just imagine what that man with his talents could do with like kind of LinkedIn like bro tech bro culture he would write something oh, about would, yes. Adam Neumann and he'd be like Adam Neumann parties yes what a legend and be like what like no it was a satire yeah. so yeah I think he would appreciate mm-hmm. the bubble of the past decade um and then it bursting y'all you're looking around and saying like why are these the people being celebrated (laughs) (laughs) yes and i think that he had you know some small c conservative because you know i've read i was curious about this you know the different writers artists you know how bohemian socialist liberal i would call him like even today like like a liberal you know he he was raised super super um religious but you know from you know, this kind of upper Midwest, even now, you know, in the area around Minnesota is like simultaneously old fashioned and yet progressive politically. I feel like, you know, it was like a proto version of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that he was someone that wanted and even welcomed some large scale social changes while always being a little bit grumpy as, as pre- and you tell me, did you go to a, like a large, small, uh, private public high school? What? Yeah. How did you encounter this? And did you, did you get harassed by your teacher? <laughs> Cause I, I feel like there is something about being a scholarship kid at a prep school that like you just, it's just a unique experience. I'm not saying it's better or yeah. worse. It's just, it's not really replicable. And it does. It makes you think if I play my cards right, I can get XYZ. 
And my experience as an adult is like, mm, put a lot of asterisks around that. A lot of luck that is factored in. Too. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I think that's where um, his chip on the shoulder comes from. Since he's middle class, he has to be smarter than the trust fund boys he's surrounded by. And yet he has like this certain like laziness. And I think we'd call it, you know, entitlement or privilege or whatever. I'm like, yeah, he kind of does. Like he doesn't want to be out, you know. Hemingway and his like weird relationship with masculinity right it's like well like he's from such a different milieu and like like he was a journalist there's just something Mm -hmm. different about being on the front lines of the Spanish Civil War be like I could die at any moment and then like being at a cocktail party with your prep school friends being like oh tell me more about your job at the bank like it's just it's it's a very different way of yes they were both obsessed with status in my opinion as mm-hmm. writers and also their reception how how was oh their god yeah, yeah yeah they and, were they um, were tracking the reviews and the sales figures yeah and that's to me i mean it's just it is what it is i'm sure that um it was just ahead of its time or something mm-hmm. yeah it, yeah all right we, we, we got some <laughs> coming in the truth so okay, i just gonna say real quick uh my relationship with the text is was reading it in a public school a large public school uh and I will say I first read it when I was too immature to get it and care. Mm, and uh, I, this happens uh, over and over with great literature that it's, it's yep. foisted on ninth graders and 10th graders, which they, I'm not saying they're incapable of understanding great literature. I'm just saying they don't have the life experience to really appreciate what these texts are about. And it turns a generation like just over and over. I think kids get turned off to the idea of the great books because they read it too young and they're like, that's boring. I don't get it. And they, they, I think I'm, I'm it starts to create there. an inferiority complex where they're like, mm-hmm. well, I'm not smart enough to get it, so I'm never going to try that. And I think if they just read it when they were in their 20s, you'd get so much more. Because I remember rereading it in college and being like, oh, I get this more. Yeah. And then rereading it in grad school, like, this is amazing. <laughs> yes. It's like, what does a grad, what does a, um, a grade school student know about the marriage plot, right? You know, I yeah. think that um, it, there are certain books coded as you know, somewhat more feminine, masculine. It's just it's so interesting that you know um, younger girls will get really obsessed with Anne of Green Gables. If I go back to that text, I'm like, you know, it's 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 for children, right? You know, the way some people might feel about I don't know the Hobbit or something. You know, knock on um, Tolkien. Just well, the that, Hobbit was his kids' book, right? That, that yeah, was exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I chose it, right? To say yeah. that there are these certain text and yeah i i don't remember like crying at gatsby until i was 30 right like you have to go through it. and again i've said this before on the pod but like mm, it is an interesting experience coming from you know a middle class white since whiteness is like such a thing in this work um suburban america and hit a certain age and not be quote unquote settled down, married, kids, homeowner, whatever that means in like your kind of, you know, um, local area. I think artists are like always torn between bourgeois respectability and um, bohemian, you know, rebellion. And I think that the characters and, you know, Scott himself, you know, there's an idea that um, marriage, even now, I think, you know, this. You've heard the term, I'm sure sociologists use um, uh, assortative mating, right? This book is all about that, right? If you're like 
you know, just two rungs, not in the right set. <laughs> if you didn't go to Princeton or Yale, you know, you're just, you're not going to get anywhere on the marriage market. What an interesting term, right? Like it's very economically driven, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, dating, uh, mating, marriage, where you live. you would, I thought it was so funny, darkly humorous, I guess, because it's a very dark relationship that I would consider abusive. Um, but when Tom and Daisy go to France, just like, cause they don't have anywhere to go for a year and they're just like around rich people to be rich. I'm like, this is like acquaintances of mine, probably more, um, you know, upwardly mobile yuppies, you know, more upper middle class than real wealthy. But, um, who just like end up in these places that become trendy, right? It's like everyone's in Mexico City or Austin or whatever. I'm like, exactly. Like this idea that um, marriage as not only an expression of affection or in the case of Jay Gatz, limerence, like obsession, healthy obsession in my opinion, um, but also of like a cornerstone to your adulthood like coming so I just think that yes you're right that like a coming of age story whether that's film novel whatever I think yes you probably tend to relate I would say people just in front of you on the path right if I was 15 or 16 I might want to read or watch maybe you're saying going off to college we were really into those genres of films and I think that's it's funny, but I would kind of um, classify the side of paradise as a young adult novel. It's 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 a Kunstler roman. It's just like him in college. I'm like, there's not really that much plot, right? And then um, uh, the beautiful and damned, you know, the newlyweds, right? So it's like mm-hmm. I think I agree with you that like the idea of the one that got away in your late 20s the cuss of 30 that is like a real thing (laughs) turning 30 and when you're 16 you don't you don't know nothing about that so yeah maybe maybe we can just assign them um you know some of his lighter um shorter fare for the post or something that literally was young adult fiction i don't know we can we can reform syllabi the country over so you read it and you're like okay like the take the quiz but it didn't stick with you and did you did you ever watch a movie like with robert redford i saw the robert redford in class uh (laughs) public school everyone (laughs) the teacher's like just again wasn't grabbing me (laughs) i've I've never gone and rewatched it i probably should uh but it's one of those texts that now i like you it's like definitely on my list like the one things i've reread the most Mm -hmm. uh just because i read it in in high school or junior high. I can't remember. I think I want to say it was ninth grade that I read it. I mean, I do uh, think something about the prose sticks with people because I feel like people quote it even um, subconsciously. Like, I didn't know that um, Joe Cool was basically Gatsby. I was really, the, really the Snoopy. That's, yes. <laughs> this whole idea of old sport. I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I was like way, way into – and Charles Schultz, Midwestern, right? And so I think that it's in – some of these texts that we've talked about have gone beyond 
a self-contained work of prose. Mm -hmm. Like, there are great books that are, even the one that I compared it to. The Razor's Edge is a flawless, gorgeous work of fiction, and I can't just, like, throw in Larry Durrell in a casual conversation. But if you say it's a Gatsby party, people know what a Gatsby party means, even if they've never read the book. And so I just, I want to talk about that, maybe in the notes we'll get to it, but beyond the, um, you know, uh, edition issued to soldiers. I'm like, how, how is it this <laughs> much of a thing? Did they just have so many unsold copies? They're like, oh, short um, book by an American master. For all. I, I think it is interesting that there are probably, but I mean, the, the critical consensus I think has to do something with that. You know, is that it's so um, complex narratively that i think you know there are other good novels of the 20s and 30s they are just straightforward narratives like they're just Mm -hmm. they're stories they're good you put it down this one i think since he was it feels you know and that's another thing is i think the it's like tropes i read just today i was like oh i wouldn't have thought this way but he was not trying to write a realistic story at the time social realism like sister carrie all this stuff you know the like burgeoning socialists you know talking about leninism and all this we're um the dominant school i would say right well yeah we're in that transition point from the the realist to the modernists Mm -hmm. right and so he's yeah and so he wasn't recognized as being too i mean what i've never read this and this shows i'm not an academic because i've had mentors i trust be like you must do this like "Mm, i don't know um wasn't it just around this time that um uh the dubliners guy ulysses i believe it's called Uh uh-huh yeah Um, to me that's uh, like one of those like if you have a phd you have to slog through this but i just that's a little before that's james joyce it's uh there you go go. 1914 is Dubliners. Uh, wow, and that's so interesting because I do think there must have been, you know, a lot of crosstalk across the pond. Obviously, English language literature, but it feels like American and British literature must have really taken different paths. Because I just feel like if I think about your know, works that I've enjoyed, there's like, hmm different schools of satire and that's what's interesting about this book and what i think is debatable but you know some people claim is that his view was that social class was too hierarchical and rigid and i think british like society always knew that so it's like it's not like we're, we're not we're not really like your our previous um conversation about dickens like yep rich and poor like <laughs> shocker right news at 11 but i think that yeah the so-called american dream and i guess i was just not i don't know it was not like something that i ever like thought that much of. and here's something interesting and i wonder if it is because of my milieu at the time, where I lived was among the places with the most flat culture, the least inequality. So even my own you know, dentist, lawyer, entrepreneur, you know, the children of that class, classmates were not as wealthy as your tech billionaires. 
20 Uh years later. Like, not even close, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so I think that as – I wonder, actually, if this text has kind of resurfaced in, you know, prominence in the cult – as you say, at Gatsby parties – as there's literally Gatsby money flowing around our economy, and like, is this ill-gotten gains? Are you? Are you there? Are you a yeah, In some polls? instances, uh, undeniably, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so I think that um, I don't like. I don't love message books. I don't love things that are too preachy. But uh-huh. this does not feel like it's a pat conclusion. It just yeah, I, th- feels I think there's um, there's a lot of ambiguity about like what our takeaway is, but it leaves mm-hmm. you pondering that takeaway. So it, it does a good mm-hmm. job of raising questions and making you as a reader uh, like uh, more aware of cultural issues, more aware of class issues, but not necessarily mm-hmm. telling you here's the moral and this is how we fix it. <laughs> it's more like, hey, have you the ever noticed there's a lot of issues here? It's just, <laughs> Stock your ex from five years ago and build the tackiest McMansion in, you know, like binoculars distance. You can't. Just try it. You know, just, I don't know. I think the audience should see how that works out for them. Just, just do it as a bit. Like it starts as like, you know, a way to, you know, indulge your, you know, mental issues. And then maybe before you know it, you'll fix the World Series. So. <laughs> All right. Let's let's run through uh, some of the trivia here and and the plot, and then we can dig into a a bit more of some of these ideas because I love love the the depth that we're already hitting. Um, So Great Gatsby is this 1925 novel by Fitzgerald, and it's a critical look at the contemporary culture that he was living in. And some of this is going to be uh, in uh, like uh, assessments of it determined to be somewhat autobiographical of Fitzgerald's experience. So around this time, he lived in an area that was divided, that divided old wealth and nouveau riche. And he, when he was there, he had an enigmatic neighbor who self mythologized his life while Mm -hmm. throwing wild parties. uh, And no one was quite sure where his money was coming from. (laughs) Like this is starting to sound a little familiar, right? Uh, For all this. And also in the time that he was starting to kind of conceptualize and write the story, there was, um, a murder case called the Halls Mills uh, Hall Mills murder case that became until the um, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby like the example in culture of a media frenzy that goes wild and everyone is talking mm-hmm. about this thing and it is a uh, double murder of a man and his mistress and there's all the supposition of like who's who's the murderer and and the media is just giving the the readership every bit of gossip imaginable about this case. And so when you layer on those two things, Fitzgerald's lived experience in this kind of divided <laughs> old money, new money uh, with a weird neighbor who throws wild parties and this public fascination with a murder suicide or, or, or uh, a double murder case, mm-hmm. you start to see like, okay, I'm seeing some elements of Greg Gatsby <laughs> that are present here. Um, when it was released in 1925, it had generally favorable reviews, but did not sell well. Um, and Fitzgerald is he's going to die at the age of 44 and thinking that his whole writing career was a failure and his work was destined to be forgotten because of uh, he'd had some hits, but he thought this was going to be another hit. And when it didn't, he kind of spiraled a bit. And when he spirals, <laughs> he spirals, a, a, a spirals a lot. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, he's going to spiral into streak for yeah, sure. alcoholism and mental health crises are going to abound <laughs> uh, in, in his his personal life and his relationships there's gonna be a lot uh going on 
Indeed. Um, when I was looking at the trivia, and I never do this, he was never happy with the title, The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. And he had- he's so pretentious. Good. Oh my goodness, yes. Like, you know who actually has to take the credit as far as I can tell is Zelda. She's like, mm-hmm. Great Gatsby. That's going to you know, pick it off the shelf. He's like, The Ashapes and the Millionaires. Trimalkio and Westwick. I'm like, That's so Princeton. Like, just. What do you, I think the Great Gatsby is perfect. What do you think of it as a title? Oh yeah, it it, um, it rides that line of I, I think the Great feels a little simplistic, but then when you throw in Gatsby, there's like this little bit of mystery. And mm-hmm. by now, because Gatsby has become a byword, like its own true known it's hard, thing. It's hard to be objective, but yeah, his, but, but it definitely his el- alternatives just didn't. Um, so here are his alternatives: me. among mm-hmm. ash heaps and millionaires. Which come on. <laughs> it could work if you drop among ash heaps and millionaires is acceptable but the among mm. is just like it's like yeah. very um vague and dissipated yeah Tremalchio and west egg which is what he wanted most and oh, almost God. pushed to get it changed right before publication is that some like pygmalion like it's, ancient greek or it's, roman it's a <laughs> roman it's a it's a roman sat a character in a roman satire i can say this as a prep school graduate that's too prep school no one's gonna yeah. know who the hell that is. And that's what, I, that's what his uh, his editor told him. This he's like, this one is too uh-huh. obscure. Like you do, like we were just kind of talking about. You can yeah. do references to Gatsby, and that is considered enough common cultural knowledge that it's not problematic to reference Gatsby in a TV mm-hmm. show or in common <laughs> conversation. But if you start referencing The Razor's Edge, it's just a little too deep. And I think mm-hmm. you're referencing Tremalgio. You're a couple layers beneath The Razor's <laughs> Edge. <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> and and yeah, apparently he was like pushing for this to be changed back to Tremolchio in West Egg, which I I mean, come on. <laughs> what is that? Uh and, he also wanted yeah, West Egg being a fictional place. It's mm-hmm. just yeah, he 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 usually was um pretty good with titles. So I don't you know, yeah. his short stories, it's more Oh yeah, he has right? great titles in his short stories. So um yeah. He also considered stuff. on the road to West Egg, which again, West Egg is <laughs> what? Not Are you yet. Jack Kerouac before? Yeah. Is that like on the road? And then yeah, uh, it, it shows his very romantic nature, right? Like these all sound like Hallmark movies. I'm like, but mm-hmm. this book is not Hallmark. Like, what are you doing? And this next one to me would have centered this more as uh, a social commentary. Oh, it yeah. was almost under the red, white, and blue, uh, was mm. one of the other titles. And I think that's that, interesting. Yeah, that makes that it harder makes to think. read this as, as anything but like a social critique. Um, it sounds like you know the artist. I say that at the same time that like uh, the song "Born in the USA" gets misappropriated as like some great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> actually patriotic thinking, anthem uh, when it's uh, when it's clearly uh, trying to be a critique of some social uh, inequities that exist. <laughs> Lana, yeah, every Republican, specifically um, campaign that um, appropriates pretty much any rock artist that's not Kid Rock, I'm like, you're just going to have to, like, apologize on Twitter and pay, like, universal music. Because, yeah, it's almost never straightforward rah-rah-rah mm-hmm. um, 20th century artists. So, yeah, if you had gone like, with Under well, the Red, White, and Blue, I do wonder if there'd be, like, a subset of uh, – of people who are like, this is the you know Lana, the great American novel. A, a lot of Del Rey album literally it celebrates that. Uh, everything about America. And like, well, have you have you read it? Uh, because I just I hate to imagine a world where 
Mm, you know, Tom is like the leader of the Proud Boys, like unironically. Well, I mean, and they're just like, I mean, he is. So that's- he is, yeah. Like the the there's a text that Tom, uh, like Fitzgerald, is parodying yeah. a text, yeah, uh, that uh, a real world text called "The Passing of the Great Race" that was published in 1916, and he puts you know his least likable amongst a cast of unlikable characters. Tom is the mm-hmm. one who spouts this, so we're not we're clearly supposed to not accept this as wisdom uh but that is a text that leads to the anti-semitism of the nazis at least you know it's mm-hmm. in there with the protocols of the elders of zion is like the most uh, unfortunately influential in terms of like the negative stereotypes that get kind on. of it's like i have some sympathy for scott in terms of like how the world changed with the depression so Mm -hmm. many you know there's always been something of a gap between what critics like and what audiences like and so to me it's quite clear that what was considered groundbreaking edgy um you know exploratory bohemian began to be seen as decadent hashtag privileged right as soon as the economy goes south People want – here's another book I read in that class. I could not stand. I know it's considered a capital G great book, but um, um, East of Eden or one of these um, – you know, it's so grim. I'm like, you can't be a <laughs> well-coiffed, expatriate, alcoholic, fancy pants dude and write – about Oki is he it's not you're like this idea that a narrative yeah I'm gonna be a little ranty now and be like here's my true colors I don't think a piece of art needs to like change anything to be valuable I just don't know that it like benefits anyone to you know try to go you know slumming basically you know if you are indeed someone from a really rough or marginalized background do that but he's a white midwestern guy who went to prison like what why would he be the voice of him so i'm just trying to think of other writers you know in that school um who yeah were like angry you know leftist but that was what was considered perhaps not the most popular fiction that would be like gone with the wind and very uh, retrograde works of fiction but the most like critically respectable um five to ten years after this i'm like i just feel bad that they couldn't just give the guy a break and like he was more interested in capitalism hence um love of the last tycoon is about hollywood and had he lived to finish i think would be considered a great look at that industry under a microscope. As someone but, yeah. who's living it, because he goes yes. and works in Hollywood. Yes, he cares uh, so, he's, so he's, much about my that bro. I post this on Facebook. I'm like, honey, how can you not have any money? He made not accounting for inflation, just the numbers. What I make about per week. I'm like, bro, that was a century ago. That's like what 20, 30, 40 times more. But like, he made a lot of money, um, even in some of his yeah mentally. Hell, mentally ill eras of you know bad anxiety, depression, alcoholism. Where I'm like, yeah, he needed a good financial manager, and yeah, clearly and Zelda was not a good financial manager. <laughs> well, say. I think she was um uh misdiagnosed and um, very yes, mistreated. yeah. There's a lot. I mean, Zelda's key figure in like in it the is lore. not head canon to me that that woman had what we would modern. What we minds would describe as schizophrenia because I just don't think she has the DSM symptoms. So I'm like, this poor woman needs, you know, 
her own spending money and like lithium. She doesn't need to be like strapped down, of course, or tragic death. It just, uh, yeah, it was probably a mismatch. Per, you know, a lot of people said you don't bring out the best in each other as husband and wife. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it does kind of frustrate. I'm not on the school of the people, you know, the different waves of feminists. One of these waves discovered her works. It's like, she could have been just as great. I'm like, "Mm, she could have been like Anita Luce. She could have been very, very prolific and successful, but she was not a capital G, capital A, great American novelist. And that's fine. (laughs) We can have many kinds of art and she can be over in, you know, beach reads. Cause I mean, she, and this is the uncomfortable truth. And I say this as a woman, it's the Virginia Woolf argument, room of one's own. There's not enough formal training of a woman born in 1900 or 1899 to the craft a work of fiction unless you're edith warren willa cather there's yeah there's great female novelists but i don't think zelda was it she could have been the equivalent of like a blogger and you and i had our blogging days so i think yeah it could have been totally a, a magazine type writer but yeah her gifts were not in sustained narrative likely due to some kind of mood disorder and yeah complete lack of any formal training I'll just say, so. I'll, I'll, both the Fitzgeralds could have benefited from some more modern diagnoses oh life. yeah oh yeah um apparently i didn't know this but um, the whole framework around i mean and this is interesting coming from the background that i do because i'm like yeah i think that my instincts towards drinking and i am someone that has at alcohol as an adult, um, is much more a hashtag personal responsibility, right? You know, this whole idea that, well, you know, there's really a medical element, it's treatable. I have, I'm not saying this is right, but my gut feeling is always like, you know, get your shit together, pardon my French, but that it's a personal choice. And I look at everything about this man's life and, you know, he started, um, uh, with this substance very young i'm like oh no, it, it, it's just a medical it like he needed to be detoxed and have a proper yeah as you say a modern um tools to alcoholism substance abuse have evolved and i think it's tragic i mean i just yeah. I, and, well, I mean i the one of the great tragedies is that he does finally get his act together yes guys have a heart attack. but he has done too much damage to his i truly think that yes it's um it has to be a testament to just how much this man was abusing substance, you know, alcohol. I don't know if there were other drugs at these parties, but yeah, you know, it's um, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think he clearly had what we would call anxiety, like really bad anxiety, right? He's always, you know, in his personal correspondence going you know, these kind of extreme takes of uh, this is going to be the best book, this is going to be the worst book. I'm like, oh, been there. And also, like, you need cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just going to be a book. Just just finish it and let, let the chips fall where they may. And so I think people prone to these sort of distortions, you know, down moods. Um, I thought, like, I almost cried. I'm like, this is so sad to me. <laughs> it felt resonant. Um, he had this at the time, very poorly received. People like this is, you know, think of like, I don't know, mm, talk shows, right? A so-called washed up actor, director will go on a talk show and instead of it helping their cause, people are like, that's an overshare, right? So he was oversharing to the uh, the New York Post, I think it was, and talked about his father getting sacked 
and just losing every like he woke up he had like a little you know quarter whatever coin to go swimming you know very comfortable middle class life boom done (laughs) dad is like ruined not just um money because his mother's parents were well off so they bailed out the family but just that idea of the blow to your view as a of yourself as a breadwinner it was always it was the wolf at the door he never was gonna feel i heard um fellow alcoholic um but was able to get sober Dak shepherd say that he did not feel like economically secure and he was looking at you know some account of his with millions of dollars he had done idiocracy a very big mainstream films and he had to change his mindset because of his own financially insecure childhood so it's like oh this actually just makes a lot of logical sense then he feels no matter what level success he attains it could all be taken from him just like when he was that 12 year old kid i'm like that's that's rough sky but yeah he did need mm, make some different choices along the way for sure all right we we we, we're getting into no the idea. text <laughs> i have no idea how we diverge this far but i still have two alternative titles <laughs> oh my god and the, the first alternative title is i'm uh, i'm obsessed with scott fitzgerald and will be the millennial answer to him <laughs> a novel <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, the, the next uh, alternative title was The Gold-Hatted Gatsby, which is mm-hmm. apparently Zelda was also a proponent of that one before they settled on The Great Gatsby. And then That's the last the, one. That's um, the quote at the front, the epigraph. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, which uh, I think, if I'm remembering right, Fitzgerald wrote himself but signed it in another name. <laughs> that is correct. And that is very – that's the thing that he would do. Yeah. <laughs> and the last, last alternative title for The Great Gatsby was The High Bouncing Lover. I think the Great Gatsby mm, was the right choice. That's a little, <laughs> that's a little blue. Our, yeah. I don't know if that would strike uh, the lost generation as inappropriate. I, like, I love that, actually. That's the what I'm going to call it now. <laughs> hey, bouncing lover. <laughs> so this book was released in 1925. It was almost immediately adapted into other media. There are several different stage plays throughout the decades. The first one coming in either 1925 or 26. I could not nail down, nail down which when I was trying to look into it. Um, but that stage play is going to be the basis of the first film adaptation, which is going to come in 1926. So -hmm. like these things are coming fast. Uh, There have been opera adaptations, at least two that I saw several different ballet adaptations. Film adaptations have been produced in 1926, 1949, 1974, and 2013. So if it were a century later, it instantly would have been like an HBO miniseries. Like it was just that (laughs) much IP, you think? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I mean, they're they're having to pay for the rights still because it didn't enter public domain until... Explain that to me from the perspective of like these agents, you know, Hollywood, everything. If it's not a bestseller, is it just on the strength of his reputation? Like how... Do you think he bundled the rights? That's just kind of surprising. Well, by, when you think by about the forty-nine it. ones, it's becoming a like, thing. Like, yeah, it's becoming a that's thing. That's true. That's yeah, true. because um, you made an offhand reference to it earlier, but it does get shipped out to a lot of soldiers in World War II, and this starts to make it more of a a popular common culture uh, mm-hmm. text instead mm-hmm. of just like oh, critics. I remember critics liking that, and that from then on, it it is in like high schools, like it's in the curriculum from the mm-hmm. from really the forties on. That this is one of the texts we're gonna sign. Uh, in you know, for young readers to say this is what great American literature looks so like. So finally, his editor was just like, "I'm making the editorial decision. It's the Great Gatsby. <laughs> no more <laughs> pushback." Uh, 
And also, like in terms of the the film adaptations, I saw this reference to a stop motion adaptation that was written mm. by Brian Selznick that is in and production. I saw a reference to a not a production. Um, oh, the. <laughs> but the we're gonna have to do a follow up episode if the Muppet Gatsby ever gets <laughs> the Great Kermit. <laughs> there is a fan script of the Muppet Great Gatsby that wow. exists. Um, you know, just one of those uh, uh, where people want to insert the Muppets into uh, existing IP. If, which if only I, I could time machine him more. and say, you don't understand. Like everything, your wildest dreams came true. Like just like <laughs> you, you can live the dream. Just, just hold on, man, hold on. Because <laughs> yeah, I guess World War Two is only years. You know, yeah, one to. F- Five years after he croaked. So it's just, and you're right. It's tragic. It's horrible. <laughs> um, there have been three television movies, one in 1955, one in 1958. And then there was one in 2000 with Mira Sorvino as Daisy and Paul Rudd as Nick. And I had no I idea this existed. did not know this till today either. And it's just strange that we've memory hold that as a culture. <laughs> there was a Paul is, it Rudd. Any, is it any good? Let's see. This. I, 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 it didn't seem like, uh, in my quick glance, it didn't seem like it was uh, at least considered like one of the core adaptations of great gatsby <laughs> it, it um, forgotten yeah oh like, wow now, yeah it's uh the the 2013 version the um you know with uh leonardo dicaprio uh that is that was an event yeah. i have to say that feels like the last movie of a certain era of filmmaking and i didn't realize it at the time like i would say the last time cinema felt like a big deal and I love movies. I go to, you know, obscure, independent, foreign, whatever movies, but like probably until, you know, maybe this like big 80s nostalgia with Top Gun and everything. But I just, I'm really shook actually how badly American movies are doing, like monetarily. Like the box uh, office receipts. Hit by so many different yes, things. We went time. through our own Great War. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Influenza. Well, you know, as far as like the, the box office, like a lot of yeah. people will just blame Marvel and say it's sucking all the air out of the room. <laughs> He it's simultaneous said, with, said the professor of comic books and yeah, well, <laughs> the media in general. Yeah, it's yeah. also simultaneously happening with uh, streaming, uh, increasing access to so much more media. Also, our home televisions are so much better than any generation ever had. Where it used to be you went to the movie because you could never see a an image like mm. that outside of the movie theater. And now that's just not true. And it's then, true. My last screening of this film was in a house. I was you know, renting a room in, and we had a very, very large TV. And so we just... Just pulled it up on Netflix. And then when you, right you, and, you have yeah. those things happening at the same time, there's a pandemic where you literally can't go to movies because you're <laughs> in the habit of it. I think and like, that, Hollywood had no idea this was this was all coming. It's an interesting <laughs> – I think if you want to you know, situate in a cultural context, what was it like being a young person in the lost generation? Yeah, it was very analogous to <clears throat> being shipped off to war. Yeah, there's plenty of veterans in the millennial generation. A COVID-like pandemic, right? Once in a century. And then extreme stock market volatility, right? Mass unemployment and then, you know, mass, you know, building up the way inflation that people feel. Yes, yes. Hyperinflation in 1919. So, yeah, it's, it's a time where no one feels stable. But what's interesting is there was a bit more mm, – optimism it seemed to me there was more of a consensus about what america 
means and so to kind of like complicate that narrative is so uh interesting to me right (laughs) like we're coming off world war one and then world war ii is really going to cement an idea of what america means for a good long Mm. while Uh, it's gonna take a while before that starts to get troubled um Uh, last couple things. The book entered the public domain in 2021, and already oh. there have been several retellings from different characters' points of view and prequels that have been published. Like people were ready to go. Oh as wow! Soon as yeah, this I, thing I, I do remember domain. seeing a literary novel called Nick. So presumably, from yes, his the, yeah, it's Nick Carraway's uh, early years is what that one is. Oh, all right. Um, and Maybe then there, there were three graphic novel adaptations that have been published. I haven't read the Nick one. I just know that it exists out there. I was just <laughs> surprised. This book barely entered public domain, and you know, already- you know what that reminds. Of how people felt about the Great Gatsby when it came out. They probably knew. They're like, oh yeah, the third Fitzgerald book, eh, it's not worth reading. Yeah. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, do a quick spoiler zone summary and then uh, <laughs> we've, we've already done so much of our discussion about it. That's <laughs> uh, great. We're doing experimental nonlinear podcast yeah, storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Our listeners, I mean, this uh, fortunately, this is a text that I'm guessing most of our listeners are familiar with. So this we're is okay. going to be a ride. Like, if someone's an international listener, they're like Scott, who just just start with a good, you know, biographical article because this is just common knowledge in American <laughs> culture. <laughs> All right. So Nick Carraway moves to New York and begins work as a bond salesman. He rents a bungalow in West Egg. And his place is next door to a mansion owned by Gatsby. Nick goes to dinner with his cousin, Daisy, who is married to Tom Buchanan, a boorish, misogynistic racist. They live Mm. in a mansion. uh, Daisy and Tom live in East Egg, which is across the bay from West Egg. And East Egg is the old established money. Uh, Nick meets Jordan Baker, a friend of Daisy's. Jordan tells Daisy that – or tells uh, Nick that Tom has a woman in the city. And this woman calls during their dinner, and it is awkward. And that is going to be a hallmark word for summarizing the great Gatsby. There's just a <laughs> lot of awkward social moments. Uh, Nick goes to New York with Tom. Tom stops to get Myrtle. Myrtle is the wife of a mechanic named George Wilson. And Tom takes Nick and Myrtle to an apartment he rents in the city for his affair with Myrtle. He's just showing off to Nick like, yeah, this is this. You you know my wife. You're a cousin to my wife, but I'm going to show you the woman I'm having an affair with and that I rent an apartment for. Uh, yeah, he's, have, he's not really trying to cover his trail, is he here? It's, as it's, not, as he gets. it's not only infidelity, which yeah. most people would acknowledge, whatever their feelings on it, you know, um, this is not so issues it's not ethical non-monogamy we'll say that it's yeah it's just so um he's brazen brazen yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly he he really does suck <laughs> uh so they're gonna have a party at this apartment with a bunch of myrtle's friends uh so nick poor nick here. Uh, that party is gonna end when um tom hits Myrtle and breaks her nose and it's horrifying and awkward for everyone uh, that is there. So now Nick is going to get an invite to Gatsby's and he's going to go over to a massive party. He doesn't recognize anyone there. He's feeling awkward. Uh, He finally runs into Jordan, uh, Daisy's friend and hangs out with her for a little while. They have a conversation with a man and eventually they realize this man is Jay Gatsby. (laughs) No one knows who (laughs) Gatsby is. And they've been having this conversation with him. And I have to say that to me is one of the great reveals in film. I think the 2013 film that's like now a um, a gif, right? A meme of um, Leonardo DiCaprio as Gatsby lifting the cocktail glass. I mean, it's just, it's shot really well, right? Mm-hmm. Where again, we're well, like, all I, right. Like, Baz Luhrmann <laughs> can, can frame a shot. Uh. He, he might have understood the text better than it than Sky himself. I don't know. It's, we'll, we'll have to talk about the film separate from the novel because it's, it's a really powerful book, and yet 
deviates tonally in interesting ways from how I would read the novel, which I think mm-hmm. is much darker. And the movie feels very Boz Lerman, <laughs> very spectacle over the top, um, like the feelings I would get at a Broadway musical, right? He, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like a musical. Didn't he do? Um, I get Boz Lerman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is him, probably not, but I feel like um, Greatest Showman is like influenced that is by not that. not Boz Lerman. I didn't but, think but, so, but it's but like it, it couldn't exist without him. him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so we have uh, Nick uh, has met Gatsby. Gatsby invites Nick to come out on his boat, and they start to hang out. Um, really, I forgot the boat. What a yeah. what an interesting callback to his origins. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Later, Gatsby is going to take Nick to lunch. Like Nick is just getting like pulled around from social interaction to social interaction. You know what? This proves that these white collar jobs, finance bros, don't actually work. <laughs> he never has to actually <laughs> go to his office. There's like a reference early on to him like staying. <laughs> late and studying uh-huh. <laughs> but, but it's one reference and but as far as like his actual actions we see taking place yeah um, it's, it's just uh party dinner uh lunch he's, he's a party sal- dinner lunch he's a salary man with um his daddy's money for the first year he doesn't really have to worry about it <laughs> so gatsby's gonna brag to nick about all of his war experiences and show off medals that he earned and also talk about his time at oxford and he's <laughs> Uh, Speaking like creating, of awkward, that's, I don't know, it's yeah. cringy, right? Creating this, like, uh, vision uh, that he wants Nick to clearly have of who Gatsby is. Um, so, when, like, would you say not only Nick's equal, but even his superior is kind of what Gatsby's always trying to oh, yeah, 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 flex yeah, yeah. on people? <laughs> yes, we uh, Gatsby wants everyone to be looking up at him and mm-hmm. is clearly trying to keep this, like, uh, which I learned through my socialization is pretty much the number way to ensure that your socioeconomic betters are like, mm, no, <laughs> you you can't be that um, desperate. But it makes sense why he would not pick up on them. Yes. Um, so now Nick is going to run into Jordan again, and she's going to explain that Gatsby had met Daisy before uh, Gatsby was deployed in the war. And Gatsby was madly in love with Daisy and wanted to marry her. But while Gatsby was away, Daisy married Tom. And mm-hmm. uh, now we realize that Gatsby is actually using Nick as like a gateway to see Daisy again. <laughs> Indeed. He's a, it's triangulation. Yeah, just think what the um, people obsessed with therapy speak would take over this. You know, everyone's a narcissist and <laughs> the, the insecure attachment. Because, yeah, it's uh, pretty explicitly so- an odd way to get back with your ex like yes send send her a telegram bro (laughs) see if she wants to run away with you but no (laughs) um so so through this connection with nick gatsby is going to reconnect with daisy and uh they're going to start hanging out uh more more frequently Mm, that's what we call it now (laughs) 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 and uh but then tom is going to discover that daisy has been hanging out with gatsby uh and um then Gatsby and Tom are going to get an argument. Uh, I mean, there's so much. That, that when they go into over. Manhattan, right? It's like yeah. super hot and humid. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Gatsby is going to insist that Daisy now must have to declare that she never loved Tom. He's going to try to put her <laughs> yeah. I love the way that Leo, perfect because he always chews up scenery, right? And so, okay. yeah, he's like very desperate and you can just tell carrie mulligan's days it's like oh, like i'm not gonna yeah. go that far jay but yeah and, it's, it's uh, tense for sure yeah daisy is uh going to announce that well i've, I've loved both of you mm-hmm. <laughs> and that now both men are angry because they, and, they yeah, to- and that's where it's this interesting you know it, 
blurs the line between like social realism, commentary, fantasy, right? And so many of his earlier works, you know, there's this like dream, the guy getting the girl, but like that's, I don't know, to me, that's like brutal. <laughs> like he is an obsessive, obsessed with this woman for five years. She's like, mm, <laughs> I'm not gonna go that far. Yeah, I'm not, so yeah, not going to commit to saying I've only ever mm-hmm. loved you in my so life. Yeah, it's this, it's this, when my yeah, husband's in the room and the father of my child. <laughs> it, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite modern movies, um, uh, which has a character named Tom, not not the antagonist that one, but I know him. It reminds me of just the sheer, sheer like pain I feel, the sympathy you know, of the awkward in 500 Days of Summer where he shows up, he has the dream, and then she's showing off her engagement ring where it's like, oh, she seems to want to manipulate other people, but especially men for attention where it's like, yeah, this you know, is um, based on you know, a real person in Scott's life that, yeah, he thought of as, you know, breaking his heart, ruining his life. It's just, it is interesting to think of Scott's ex and be like, well, yeah, like it was a teenage romance and she married someone else. Like maybe move on. <laughs> like, yeah. like both Scott in real life and then Jay just clearly can't, like that's it. Now I never thought of that till just now. He doesn't even try to date anyone else. He has like loads as far of as money. We see, yeah. yeah, 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 that we know. Yeah, all, of course. all of the money that he's accumulated is trying to impress Stacey back. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> So yeah, um, that's where I say it goes from a romance to like obsession. That's that's pretty mm-hmm. unusual behavior for sure. <laughs> so Daisy announces that she's going to stay with her husband, uh, and but then Tom is like having one. He just wants to rub some extra salt in the wound, so he tells Gatsby that he needs to drive Daisy home. <laughs> that is like, and I think maybe that's where the critics were like, "Is that realistic?" Because yeah, I had all the you know dominoes have to fall in a certain way, but yeah, that is. It's just interesting. I can see yeah, this I can... power move from someone as boorish, Tom. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you have to put yourself in the yeah. driver's seat. <laughs> so um, during this drive back from the city to the eggs, East and West Egg. <laughs> Long um, Island, right? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a car accident and Myrtle is killed. So Tom's uh, mistress is killed. R.I.P. R- Isla Fisher. <laughs> and uh, Gatsby, uh, at first uh, we, we're seeing this like from Nick's point of view, like seeing everything afterwards and Nick is assuming that Gatsby was driving, but then when Nick has a conversation with Gatsby uh, and the, the car had driven off, but they, Nick knows this was Gatsby's car that hit Myrtle. Mm-hmm. Nick realizes that Daisy was driving the car. Uh, but Gatsby is, uh, because of his his obsession, he wants to do the noble thing and take the blame for the accident. <laughs> yeah, that, with, that's with the clear, so interesting. With the clear like idea that she's going to love me for this. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? that, yeah. uh, if, if I do this thing, uh, now, he, he's now she's all, probably He's me. already, you know, uh, he has to know on some level that he could be called up by the forerunner to the FBI at literally any time. It's like, what's one more thing on my rap sheet? Yeah. He's a mob boss. Yeah. The mob boss has another crime on his rap sheet. Um, so, uh, Nick tells Gatsby they should just run away and get out of there. Uh, and um, but but uh, through the sequence of events that kind of get unraveled, not linearly for us. We mm. we later find out that Tom is going to go tell George that Gatsby's car is the one that hit George's wife, and mm. then George is going to 
assume he knows his wife was having an affair. He thinks it must have been whoever was driving that car. So now uh. George thinks that Gatsby killed his wife and had been having an affair with his wife. Uh, so George is going mm. to get a gun and wow. go and kill Gatsby and then kill himself. And then there's actually, it's much longer than I remembered this denouement of like yes. Nick trying to find out, <laughs> does anyone care that Jay Gatsby is dead? And the answer is largely <laughs> no. no. Uh, Gatsby's yeah, his, father, who's uh, named uh, Henry, Henry Gats, uh-huh. uh, not Gatsby, just Gats, comes to the funeral and he's very impressed to see the lifestyle that his son was living at his son's house and he thinks he must have been a great man and everyone must have loved him but then the funeral is one of the saddest things in all of literature where it is uh nick is the only acquaintance of jay gatsby's outside of his blood relative that is willing to attend and the, the, and the drunk guy that hangs and the one drunk guy yep. from one of the parties is like oh is, this- <laughs> is there gonna be an open bar <laughs> yeah. or is this a funeral yeah yeah that's it's pretty yeah dark isn't it he, yeah he he is the man what do you get the man who has everything um actual friends apparently <laughs> yes uh and, and i mean that's Largely where it ends. Like there's a little bit of where we find out just a little bit more about each of the characters, but it, it doesn't even stick with me because it's just the the ending of Gatsby's funeral is just the, it, it really is like the, the sad heart of the novel. Well, it's the, uh, yeah, it's, it's this lyrical reflection. And I think you know, whether you're a big Fitzgerald stan or not, the last, you know, couple pages or widely cited is one of the most beautifully written. I think honestly it would have been hard to stick that, Landy. I don't know if for me anyway, the book would have made the emotional impression if it had just been like, and then it was sad and <laughs> if it had been purely plot. But then this um, almost more omniscient voice has been, you know, a, a first person narrator, which almost strikes me as a novel at that time. You know, when you're reading, mm-hmm. you know, the great American books, there's a lot more third person, but it feels like you step away like if you were in a movie, right, it's all been very much what's happening in front of you. And then you really like zoom out, right? And you're he's reflecting on um, centuries of American life in, you know, the New York, Long Island, Manhattan area. And it's just, it's riveting prose, right? And so I think mm-hmm. that, you know, whether that's a coda in a sense, whether, you know, Nick... Is Nick a developed enough character? Is it just obviously Fitzgerald comedy? Yeah. That's debatable, I guess. But yeah, it's it's just interesting that yeah, it doesn't really end in a plot way. Yeah, like the last a, line yeah. is "So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past." We, and- yeah, yeah, we. That's not the that's. That's us. That's millennial youth in the 2000s century. Yeah, it's, it's very like self-aware almost, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was trying to write a capital G great novel, <laughs> great Gatsby, right? And yeah, I think whether you agree it is or not all hinges on your take on that closing line. But yeah, it's um, obviously entered the lexicon. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like really powerful just like prose and descriptions in mm-hmm. this, like the way that he describes Gatsby's smile. Uh, the and I also didn't know this until I I, I remember learning this a little while ago, but it, it was reiterated when I was looking up stuff. Um, the imagery of the the doctor's glasses and this billboard that's mm-hmm. above the ash heaps that was inspired by this kind of uh, Art Deco avant garde cover 
sketch that mm-hmm. the, the editor or the publisher was thinking of using and they showed it to Fitzgerald and he fell in love with it. It's like, I'm going to make that more like the, this idea of eyes in a blue sky and eyes uh, watching over things. I'm going to make that into part of the, the text. Yeah. Um, and uh, the way he embeds it into the text, it doesn't feel out of place. It doesn't feel like, Oh, I've got this new mm-hmm. thing over here. I've got to work it in. <laughs> it feels like the, 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 the cover artist read the text and was like, well, this is the perfect imagery yeah. uh, to bring in. But it actually uh, was, it was, uh, you know, symbiotic. It was going both ways. Yeah. And that's, like, that's his real gift as a writer. And I've struggled this with, with this myself. I've, I've tried my hand at different forms and pretty much universally people think his screenplays were too writerly, too heavy on description. And so, yeah, the fact that a century later, he, you know, I hadn't been to New York until this past November, ever, right? And so, you know, I can't really visualize much about it. So it's just like shocking, actually. You, um, I took an Uber on one of the bridges, I would say, in Midtown, Manhattan, over into Brooklyn was my destination. I was like, this is it. This is-. He called up the like shimmering greatness of a great American city at dusk. As it- <laughs> like I just, I was really moved actually, his mm-hmm. gift of description. But if you go on and on about, you know, the death of the American dream and the green hills of Manhattan back when the Native Americans were the only people there in a screenplay. It just doesn't work in that form. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's too bad that he kept banging his head against that wall. And I get why the money even now is like what brings. I'm literally in Los Angeles as we speak. Right. You know, it's this idea of, you know, yeah, making it big in a way that even then when a lot more people read you know you could be a best-selling novelist I think I think it's always been tough right there's the stereotype of you know being in a garret writing your obscure chapbooks and no one cares and you're starving right Hollywood is a very capitalist entertainment structure and so I just think that if he could have successfully converted that strong gift for visualization awesome but yeah i I just don't think it was his forte (laughs) people Um, people compared it to uh one someone said you know some of the more hack work right you know just mid level movies if that right you know probably the equivalent of marvel or whatever you know big studio big budget films where someone compared it to having you know someone like michelangelo that you've hired to be a plumber where it's like you just need to fix the pipes and they're like you know trying to make capital a art so uh yeah i think that it's interesting that um it's been successfully adapted to films and yet he himself was not a successful screenwriter at all yeah, I think there's uh, the, the the most successful adaptations have come from people who are not trying to do a page for page translation. Correct. Right? Yeah, you know they're, they're trying to capture. That's that's most novel to film yeah. adaptations. To uh-huh. be fair, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's like you need someone who <laughs> leaned to the strengths of this other storytelling medium. Yep, yep. You tell a story well. Yeah, uh, and and if you have a good story, obviously it's a great launching point. But there are people who take good stories and they can't lean into the strengths of these other mediums, and it just becomes mm. a frayed mess. Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, in in the uh, transition of adaptation. Oh yeah, uh, we're 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 living through an interesting age where I think some of the most original films 
are just original screenplays but yeah it's like the age of ip that you know the minute some you know news article about a scammer goes viral we have to have three original hulu series yeah it's just there's too much content it's like a a mad race i think a lot of people are feeling this -hmm. like fatigue and you know just wanting something fresh and so yeah whatever he did he managed to successfully create a singular work but yes he he needed better marketing and (laughs) better uh i don't i just think that maybe i i alluded to this before but maybe it was just ahead of its time maybe maybe it's hitting the stride now because it was just a different way to explore these ideas yeah i think um so i I teach a class on the graphic novel mouse and there's a phrase that art spiegelman used to describe mouse Mm -hmm. that was part of his intent was to create crystalline ambiguity Mm, where where, that's interesting the reader can't help but recognize the ambiguity of this text and that they don't know what they're supposed to feel about these characters and what Mm. the takeaway is supposed to be he does not want you to have a neat takeaway he wants you to like live with the questions that this book is raising and i think great gatsby is another text that has that same crystalline ambiguity like you kind of offhandedly had said earlier on uh, like who is the main character is there a good person in this text and the answer is kind of like yeah (laughs) like it's hard to 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 nail down what is so compelling about this text and i think one of the compelling things Mm. is that very uh, the questions that it's raising. It's a story that's asking us to think about questions, not telling us what to think or what the answers are uh, to and those questions. And as a writer myself, I grapple with this, right? What makes a character feel real and not like mm-hmm. a stock trope, right? And so I think that sometimes it's subverting our expectations. You know, there's just these, these small details where you, I mean, it's one thing you know, this is, I think pretty much all of American history is riddled with you know, the real problem. But then like in art, how you deal with the race question. But there's something about the mm, responses, I guess, of the people, you know, these like dinner parties, like, you know, hey, they're, they're kind of, they're more casual. You know, it's just, you know the hangouts when Tom is going on his very explicitly white supremacist rants where it's just like all the air is sucked out of the room. They're like, well, everyone's white here. You know, it's just, it's these, it like captures the awkward, you know, instead of someone being like, well, I think really people of color need civil rights. Like it's just, it's, as you say, it's ambiguous. It's, it's, you said that word awkward, right? The tense awkwardness of everyone who looking around like, we're we were just having cocktail hour and now we're on this right yeah. yeah, and yeah it captures something that i think is it's like hyper reality right you know instead of being he manages pacing well which i don't think he i can't say that about all his works you know the, the mm-hmm. most notably tender is the night i'm like okay like <laughs> you you digress you you read some french novels while you were in france there scott like let's get to the, <laughs> like the the plot but there's something i think very admirable about the economy it's a really short 
book as you as you say let's see the word count uh i i know the audiobook i listened to was like four and a half hours long uh if you listened at one x 40 yeah. literally if i pitched a publisher and said this is under fifty thousand words they'd be like eh, it's too short for a novel so it's like it's almost a novella it's just it's very boom 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 there's no fat it's it's one summer right it opens in june famously ends right as the leaves turn brown and so i think there's just something I mean, he grew up on the works of like Booth Tarkington, who did these sprawling, multi-generational, <laughs> let's explore like eight characters. Yeah, we just, we don't, there's a lot of gaps. We don't know about, and so I think there's something about the human brain that likes that, right? We mm-hmm. want, we want to fill in, you know, what was, you know, and, Gay and, I mean, even, uh, yeah, childhood. I, you know, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Like uh, so much of the book feels like it's building towards the mystery of like, who is Gatsby? And mm. it doesn't actually tell us. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that's so, yeah. Like, like, well that, I mean, here's the postmodern answer to that. Like who is anyone? One of the very first lines. And it struck me as like a weirdly um, assertive thing to say. I'm like, is it though? And then I'll paraphrase. Nick, in his first you know, paragraph, says, personality is a series of successful gestures. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> like, like isn't our care? Like, there's this debate going on in the social sciences. Very recent. I hadn't really heard this, you know, framework until probably around COVID era. So the 2020s, that there's a debate whether our our self our you know we're in a very like sciencey age right and i would argue the 1920s were the same right you know it wasn't just racism it was race science it was eugenics right we're gonna have the mass races but make it sciencey right and so there's this debate among like scholars of consciousness about whether the self is like continuous that people can check this out we can put a link or something it's a new yorker article and the the either or question is, are you the same person that you were in the past? And this like messed me up, man. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know. I feel that I'm someone who really does. I, I, it's like a thing in my family of origin. We recount these stories. We, my brother made a meta joke about it. He's like, well, in this family, no one can have character development. Like, what? Would that have made sense to a, like, 17th century yeah. person to be like, we're all, quote, unquote, characters? I think they would have thought of character as moral character. So I mm-hmm. think that, and there was another article um, in the Atlantic, um, reality is, it's the cover article of whatever you know march probably march 2023 a century later after gassy we can go and be like literally everyone is making a false self right anyone can be yeah you can start as jay gats middle of effing nowhere and then be you know a quote quote in what a weird word influencer right and so there's just i actually want your take from either a scientific or just you know spiritual or emotional view does it make sense to say i have a quote quote true self unaffected by yeah, social status, mm-hmm. my gender, you know, yeah, this whole we talk idea. About it. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about it all the time on this podcast that, like, when you consume media, you have a different reaction. Like, uh, if you watch the when you're 10, <laughs> when you watch the when you're 20, when you watch, like, we talk about uh, I can't like, handle the – now I'm going to have a mental crisis. The, the media like, is what? static. It is the exact same movie or book. 
but oh my your God. reaction to it is so distinct based on your life experiences. I'm having um, like a very continental like precipice of modernity experience. Like there, it, it's just the word I would use for it is disturbing. To me, I think there is something very comforting about the idea that like you can explain who I am by going to my roots. You look back the family tree. I mean, yeah, I came from this culture very torn between two impulses individuality western frontier <laughs> go make your fortune and then like you know i'm helping my grandmother do her genealogy and i'm literally spending like my whole early 20s thinking about dead pioneers <laughs> like it, it it felt like i wasn't just me i was this person's granddaughter i was that granddaughter's yeah it, the um that I was part of a community. And I think something that everyone, whether they were religious, secular, liberal, conservative, went through in the 20s that was much less kind of vague and artistic, but explicit in his first book was like the, frankly, just like the death of God. Like the idea of like, this is like what it is to be what I've read on this, the there's a Harper's article that I actually really liked on this is that we're over psychologizing. Like we go, we're like, what is like Mr. Darcy's core trauma? It's like that's that's ahistorical. Like, don't you can't ask like a Freudian question of a fictional character in 1812. No. So I like that that author really pushed back of um, projecting too far into the past our modern neuroses, anxieties about the self. But I'm like, mm, I think by 1925, we have some pretty, you know, you, if you have Hollywood and the radio, you probably have some pretty modern feeling um, <laughs> anxieties about identity, right? Capital I. And so I just, I don't know, I went down a rabbit hole researching this. I just had no idea there was so much scholarship, frankly, about things as regards to sexuality, gender, and this, I don't, I read this book as a teen as a very straightforward, heteronormative romantic tale. It's just so interesting that it's like, I don't, I guess the stereotype, a caricature of postmodern literary schools would be like, uh, nothing's true, nothing matters. I think that's that's too simplistic, but it would be an interesting thing to throw out there. Do you know? like um those um artists, visual artists, the um Cecine Pompeep guy, right? Like calling out the very artificiality of art. That's <laughs> that's surrealism, right? That's a, that's a thing you can do with a story to be like, yeah, Gatsby's not real, but neither is Nick Carraway. How quote unquote real is a creation of a famous celebrity author, you know, mm -hmm. versus like the annoying drunk <laughs> you're dating and you have to take to rehab, right? It's yeah, the idea that other people could construct a even our very our what was our fake um, slogan on the website we wrote for? We do it for the fame and the fortune, and it's free, and you don't know our names. Something like that, right? <laughs> so our, our our brush with extremely regional, extremely low stake celebrity sometimes freaked me out. Right? People would associate me, me Charlie, the person with this construct <laughs> of a literary collegiate. <laughs> Um, out in which, let's be honest, that's how Scott got his start too, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a very 
specific way to enter the arts. And so I think that maybe he put some of his ambivalence in this work in a way that I was not aware of even. Yeah, I think ambivalent is a good description Mm -hmm. for a lot of this text. (laughs) Okay, so who's your your nomination besides you, America, for the, you know, is we're the protagonist podcast. (laughs) Do protagonists exist, Joe? Is there one in this book? (laughs) I mean, the the character that ends, I mean, we're we're getting Nick's point of view, but he is not agentive. (laughs) He is not, um, Mm -hmm. you know, advancing the story. The character that is responsible for the story that unfolds, I think would be Gatsby, right? You know, his. Or Daisy. Yes. Uh, But I mean, it's uh, Daisy's not pursuing Gatsby, right? Like the the plot doesn't happen (laughs) without Gatsby's uh, just obsessive pursuit of uh, a fling from (laughs) from five plus years ago. So it never Um, happens without the. Millionaire yacht guy. He he is maybe the only likable character who like. And I mean, there's also have, the like, impulse. A girlfriend. That I mean, was... you say he's likable. Is he? <laughs> um, I mean, he's more the trope or the archetype that you uh, would expect of yeah. a. Because mm. he's at least presenting a version of like the self-made man, right? The, Correct. Pull yourself exactly. up by your bootstraps, yes. but yes. we're also being given these peaks behind the curtains. Like, there's no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, speaking to you, what's that subreddit? Choosing beggars? I mean, it's kind of interesting that he's like an end, he being Jim Gatz, the teenager, early 20-something guy. I had some internships with some, you know, pretty, you know, high roller type um, characters throughout my life. I think it's a little interesting that he feels so entitled to not just, you know, his job on the boat but like his inheritance like yeah he just he gats has such a chip on his shoulder and it's just it's so interesting to like just ask like yes does as you say likable unlikable like i think it's relatable i think um especially since the character is you know well and this was the other thing that blew my mind is you know the question of like I mean even this word has taken on a tinge of connotation that I don't think it had a hundred years ago but you know like whiteness and its construction and from what I understand from the scholarship you know this is a very fast shifting field but there's like different waves of migration that's indisputable right and who counts as quote-unquote white yeah changes Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. In American history, there like were very... where the Irish Americans were not <laughs> considered white. Correct. Americans. The ancestors of very, very many, um, not all, I want to acknowledge, but the vast majority of the Mormon settlers, the converts came from places in modern day <clears throat> Northern Europe, UK, you know, places like Wales, Denmark. A lot of people outside Utah or the Mormon corridor. Idaho, Arizona, don't realize. I, I say, you know, like, this is a more recent wave of, like, British, you know, Welsh, Scottish, um, you know, so just ethnically, um, it's a, you know, it's like an enclave, right? And what's so interesting is um, phenotypically, someone like Ken Jennings or Mitt Romney, I think most people look at them and think white. Like, they're, they're European-American um, genetically, I think, is kind of beyond dispute but socially um 
when there was a lot of anti-Mormon sentiment in mid-19th century America, Mormons didn't really count as white. They were othered. And so I just think that's so interesting that, you know, I was <laughs> going to ask you about this. Um, you know, both you and I, our legal last names will be coded as somewhat, you know, quote-unquote ethnic, you know, Dorowski, well, what's that? <laughs> like my own grandmother, I'm sure, be like, oh, those, you know, Poles or whatever she would assume, right? And so, Reading on it, it looks like Gats would have been thought of as, you know, like an ethnic, a Midwest. It's not Wasp, right? Wasp is white, Anglo-Saxon, right? And so Gatsby is less coded. You know, Caraway would, you know, and Baker, you know, these are more quote unquote white, even if they all are pale and pasty, which apparently some readings of the text think there is more ethnic ambiguity. But I thought about that, that I intend to publish under my mother's maiden name, which was my birth name, Forrester. I'm like, well, that's very interesting. I'm like, well, it's easier to say and spell. Like that is like coding mm, a certain, you know, ethnic background is like more generic, more, (laughs) you know, and so I think people might forget this. You know, we have only our second Catholic president. As recently as John F. Kennedy, people are like, mm. yes, <laughs> we don't want we don't want a papist president. So yeah. I think that Fitzgerald, blonde dude, you know, everyone I think would think of him as white in the general sense, but not a wasp, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that was the culture that Scott was socialized in, aspired to. I think he was actually one of the few Catholics at Princeton at that time. So he is a little bit of an Arivist. He is kind of a parvenu, even though he's a good-looking blonde white guy in ways that I think complicate this narrative and the story we tell about Scott as an artist. So. But I don't think a lot of great art comes from <laughs> the country club set. And then my theory on that is like, why would like why would you want to like you know, sort of upset your nice golf playing cocktail mm-hmm. <laughs> sipping light? Like there's no if you have a chip on your shoulder, you're not gonna go try to, you know, write poetry in Paris. It's just yeah, it, it's a somewhat unusual thing to do. So do you think that that ambiguity makes him more of a stand-in for the quote-unquote every man because of the change in society or is that just like an out there <laughs> take on this uh, yeah i don't i don't know it, it's an interesting idea because there it, it allows for a different kind of identification right mm-hmm. uh, yeah uh you know that article flexible. i sent you which like blew my mind i think is probably not my re- you know listening to it again um i think everyone would be what we would consider white, except the obviously coded Jewish or black character, you know, side characters. But one current uh, English teacher in the high school level was teaching in a solely, uh, you know, non-white people of color classroom. Everyone in the classroom <clears throat> was uh, not connecting with the work. They're like, what is this? And so once he told them to really look for explicit tells in the text, you know, do we know the background of these different characters? Apparently it's actually very open to interpretation. And so I think that as you say, (laughs) we're bringing our own 
experience, right, to this work. And so it'll be interesting to see if some of these public domain texts play with that. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think we're it's, living through a somewhat like literal time, right? You know, there will be these, you know, sort of concerns, sometimes even outcries. You know, can a non homosexual character play someone gay, or you know, is it like only you know, a bisexual person can play a bisexual, you know, canon text? And I think those are discussions worth having, but it's just something very noticeable in the past 10 years right from when this came out i yeah. think the the film just the idea that like even the idea that you might get funding to you know take a capital c canon book and just play it pretty straight no pun <laughs> explicitly intended i talking to different creators it's something very much in the air right and mm-hmm. so i think that i'm all for people connecting with art in like creative out of the box ways. I'm not like tied to, um, you know, any ones. I haven't done a lot of classroom teaching. I've done a lot more, you know, kind of like one-on-one tutoring, you know, um, trying to connect with students. But I know like you having been more of a classroom teacher, do you think that, mm, how would I put this? Is the existence of a canon of literature almost by its nature going to prioritize a certain, <laughs> you know, sort of in crowd where we're like, because it is, it's kind of funny to be like, what if, you know, the great American novel in a hundred years from now is seen as some like, I don't know, mid-list beach read that everyone dismisses like, eh, <laughs> whatever, it's not his or her their greatest I mean, there's thing. greater and then, acknowledgement yeah. of the issues of the canon and yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's definitely like more open discussions about the need to diversify uh and the the myriad of i guess i'm just i'm a defender that, of this work just from a purely the, narrative level yeah and i i think in uh, recognizing the issues with the canon it's more about expanding it rather than saying that that oh, one shouldn't be in there uh, there you like, go that's yeah. i think that would be a healthier take for like we can have this and some amazing, mm-hmm. you know, what's the, and I think this would be an interesting text to see, you know, different, you know, like some like Prime Prejudice with its focus on the marriage plot. Mm-hmm. I know we'll get adapted by like Bollywood. Right. And so these new adaptations you say have always been so tied to like the era it was published. So I'm, I was, I was thinking of them like, what would be, what would these like, you know, subtle markers be today? And I think for sure, you know, what I was saying of like, you could not be a con artist swindler without something with the internet, right? Like you would yeah. either have to be completely offline, like no, yeah, everyone at the party would be like Googling, like, did he really go to Oxford? Is it on his LinkedIn? Or, you know, just completely um, rejecting this culture. So I think that we have a hard time even imagining this idea of like a fresh star and the self not tied <laughs> to our past because I honestly feel like it's weight in ways that I think are very much interacting with culture. Your our image. Like, do you remember as recently as like 10 to 15 years ago, the internet and the real world capital letters 
there was more of a distinction. You'll have to tell your kids about this. Be like, no, like there was a time when like, like the internet shut off at the end of the day. You went <laughs> our own um, writing venture. It started from a physical board that like blows my mind. I'm like, the medium is the message, everyone. The, the theorists were right that like, it's changing us. It's changing everything about our reality. And so, yes, this is the last, you know, Sometimes I wonder about this. Are, if you grew up in the late 20th century, maybe you had more in common with your own parents, grandparents, what have you. And then, yeah, if you're a digital native, if you're born after about the year 2000, I'm like, that's just a different world. <laughs> yeah. Well, Charlie, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up this oh, episode. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I clearly uh, went on my, uh, my passion project here. Thank you so much. Um, I do think that we can conclude this is not just a vital work of fiction, but, you know, one that just keeps giving. So when the Muppets, uh... when, okay, who are we casting? Kermit as Nick or as Gatsby? That's the question. (laughs) Or Daisy. (laughs) I think the the, the human has to be uh, Gatsby. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is Kermit is the the eyes in. Uh, But thank you for coming on. And... Uh, thank you listeners for downloading this episode for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review that really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Okay, he's got a recording, so I will just jump into this because I I found a surprising amount of trivia that I like I've taught Gatsby and Fitzgerald and I didn't know some of this trivia.